the breed has gotten closer to extinction more times than almost any other breed. He called the sheep, the Max Fluxions, a dead loss commercially. He had almost no support for keeping them going, but he did. And he made sure that in the 1950s and 1960s, a few animals were transported to zoos in England. Reason? Because they needed some sheep somewhere else just in case. What you just heard sounds like something out of a thriller. Okay, maybe a thriller for fiber geeks, but still. A rare animal hustled out of the country in a last-ditch attempt to save it. But it's a true story. On today's episode, we travel to the Isle of Man and hear the story of one of its oldest inhabitants, the Manx Lochten sheep. A sheep that's been on the brink of extinction not once or twice, but three times. And we'll talk about not just how it was saved, but why some things are worth saving in the first place. I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. The Isle of Man is located between England and Ireland. At 220 square miles, it's about the size of Chicago, but with just 1% of that city's population, maybe 85,000 people. It's cool and rainy much of the year. Craggy hills and sea cliffs in the south give way to rolling hills and flat farmland in the north. It even has a mountain range, okay, not terribly big mountains, in the center of the Isle. If you're thinking about visiting, the Isle of Man has 502 reviews on Google, most of them positive. The Isle of Man has been inhabited since the Stone Age. The Romans knew about it and maybe went there, but it was pretty much left alone by outsiders until the 8th century, when Vikings were all over the British Isles, bringing their customs, their languages, and their sheep. One of the descendants of those sheep, Manx Lochtans, are the stars of today's episode. But unless you're a hand spinner, there's a good chance you've never even heard of the Manx Lochtan. You've probably seen one, though, on the cover of heavy metal albums, usually inside a pentagram. Because as sheep go, they are pretty badass looking. Not only are they a dark brown, a pretty rare color, they usually have four, sometimes six, enormous horns. The Manx Lochtan sheep also have a rather mysterious past. I'm Deb Robeson. I'm the author of the Fleece and Fiber Sourcebook and of the Field Guide to Fleece. Deb is a spinner and an expert on sheep breeds. Well, legend says they came with the Vikings. Archaeological evidence indicates that they've been there for many thousands of years before that. So likely what's happened is that there were some very early sheep there and that the Vikings brought in some sheep that crossbred with them so that we have some Viking influence but the Max Lockton base flock has been there for thousands of years. Both the native and the Viking animals were what are called Northern European short-tailed sheep. That's a broad group of breeds that have, you guessed it, short tails. They're generally small, tough, feisty, and well-suited to the wetter cold climates they come from. You probably know Shetland or Icelandic sheep, which are part of this group. These short-tailed sheep were probably the first to appear in what is now Europe. It has retained a lot of its original primitive character right up until the modern era. 
And that is Caroline Sommerfeld, a hand dyer and a big fan of the Manx Lockton. She's also the owner of Ancient Arts Fiber, which, as far as I could find, is the only yarn company that uses Manx Lockton wool in a commercial yarn. Now today, there are over a thousand breeds of sheep, more than any other livestock animal. And they're all pretty specialized. Some produce a very particular type of wool, others are strictly for meat, but that's a relatively recent development. As Deb points out, up until a few hundred years ago... You had sheep and you used them. So people would have the sheep that would thrive in their environment. And uh, sheep are are considered the multi-purpose survival kit because there's fiber, there's meat, and there's milk. All of the materials and equipment you need to survive almost anywhere. And sheep can live in environments that other livestock can't. So they're very adaptable. And adapt they did. The Manx Lockton has evolved to thrive on the Isle of Man and its cool, wet climate. And as the only sheep in an isolated place, it's a dual-use breed, known for both the fiber and meat it produces. And there's something else to note about them. The thing is that the sheep don't need a lot of grazing, and that's really important. So these sheep will preferentially eat scrub and bracken. If the Manx Lockton is a good all-purpose sheep, its fleece is a good all-purpose fiber. And it ranges from a tan to a dark chocolate with everything in between. So it makes a really good sweater wool or for weaving or for hats or mittens or things like that. It is not something you want for a camisole, But it has been described as something that lasts and lasts, so that a coat that was worn for almost 20 years was still declared in excellent condition. In 1933, a bunch of fleeces were stashed in a loft over a stable. More than 50 years later, the wool was discovered, washed, spun, and made into a sweater. We'll hear a little more about that bundle of wool later in this episode. So the Manx is special for its rare color, its multiple horns, and an extremely durable fleece. And for one other thing. The breed has gotten closer to extinction more times than almost any other breed. So how does a breed perfectly suited to its environment disappear? The environment changes. And I don't mean climate or geography, but the economic and social climate of the Isle of Man, beginning in the 1700s. Up to that point, it's an isolated rural place. The economy was fishing and farming, lead and zinc mines. Its remote but convenient position between England and Ireland made it a smuggler's paradise, as merchant vessels full of tea, tobacco, and silks tried to avoid heavy tariffs. That changed beginning in the late 1700s, when English started moving there for complicated tax reasons. And the English did not come alone. So they were bringing in sheep that grew white wool. Dyes like cochineal and indigo had made their way to England and Europe, and white wool was the best canvas for the rich reds and blues they produced. We'll talk about genetics a bit in this episode, and the cardinal rule you need to remember is that in breeding, when you focus on getting just one thing, like lots of white wool that's very soft, other traits, even good ones, start to fall by the wayside. Those could be the ability to fend for themselves, ewes that give birth easily and are good mothers, just general resilience against disease, and the like. Think about purebred dog breeds that have tons of health or behavior issues. It's kind of like that. Primitive sheep, 
They just haven't been fussed with the way Merinos or other breeds have, so among other things, they're a lot hardier. The desire for white wool would only intensify with the introduction of chemical dyes in the mid-1800s. And cloth dyers and merchants wanted wool in much bigger quantities than the Manx sheep could produce. Here's Caroline again. These guys are quite small, so they'll produce somewhere between two and a half to four and a half pounds of wool per year. And you can compare that to a merino that produces between 13 to 17 pounds of wool. So that kind of gives you an idea of the difference in size between the sheep. So they're not big sheep, and they don't produce a ton of wool as a result. I want to point out that two to four pounds, that's unwashed, unprocessed fiber. The final yield would be much less. And the fiber the Manx sheep produced, it's all over the place. So being as it classes as a primitive sheep, it, what that means is that it hasn't had all of the various different fiber types bred out of it so that it's very uniform. A Manx sheep has a whole bunch of different fiber types on them. So they'll have little soft, fine fibers. They'll have longer, stronger fibers. They'll have something called kemp, which is actually a hollow fiber that helps the sheep hold the fleece away from its body and that insulates it. Not only did the Manx sheep produce relatively little wool, the new industrialized spinning mills just couldn't process so many types of fiber at one time. Another factor in the breed's decline was travel. Travel was evolving rapidly, and the invention of steam travel meant railroads and ferries, and opened up parts of the world that had simply been too much trouble to get to until then. The Isle of Man, it's maybe 60 miles from Belfast, 90 from Liverpool, and today, that's just a few hours by ferry. Back then, it wouldn't have been much longer. From an isolated, inward-looking community, the Isle of Man became a tourist resort for well-to-do Victorians. And those Victorians were hungry. The new English sheep weren't just a source of fiber. They were also better suited to the new tourist market, eager for fresh lamb and mutton. And the meat wasn't just for tourists on the island. It was headed offshore. So in the 1800s, the decline of the breed became even more dramatic. The reason was that populations were growing throughout the British Isles. People were moving to cities and the role of farms and farmers changed. Instead of feeding their families and their local communities, they were needing to send food off to the cities. So with all these more people, they needed sheep that grew faster and grew bigger. So a lot of English breeds were introduced. So all of these were pushing the native sheep out. You also would get six to seven pounds of wool yearly from the newcomers, whereas you'd get maybe two and a half pounds of wool a year from the Max Lockton. Some farmers just weren't down with all of this and resisted the new sheep. In fact, wearing garments made of Manx wool was a point of pride for them, kind of an early protest wear. And their dislike for the animals wasn't just a knee-jerk reaction to some foreign woolly interloper. However, those new breeds brought in a lot of health problems. So they brought in scab, they brought in maggots, so uh, fly strike became more common, and foot rot. I'm not going to get into detail, but let's just say that diseases called scab or foot rot are bad. And they hadn't been a problem up until now. So this is what I was talking about in terms of a breed that is suited to its environment. You can often avoid those problems if you match your sheep to what's going on around you. So the bigger, faster growing sheep came in and really did a number 
on the Max Lochtans in the 1800s. The economy and genetics both conspired against the Manx sheep, and the breed would have disappeared completely, except for one cranky farmer, a man appropriately named Robert Quirk. Robert Quirk was, by any standards, a bit eccentric. He plowed his fields with a horse and a heifer, he sowed turnip seeds out of a top hat, and he was adamantly opposed to the foreign English and their newfangled sheep. His statement was, the old times were best for all. So he kept uncrossed, pure Manx sheep. And for a time, he was believed to be the only one with a flock. There may have been some tucked off in another corner somewhere. But the fact is, Robert Quirk is the reason that we have Manx Lockton sheep today, or a reason, primary reason. He was a point at which the breed was saved. Now, one farmer isn't exactly a movement, and Robert Quirk didn't have a very large farm. We're not sure how many sheep he did have, but it's unlikely the breed would have survived for long after his death, around 1872. But there was another man ready to step in. If Quirk was a grumpy curmudgeon determined to hold on to the old ways, John Caesar Bacon, the second hero of this story, was his opposite. Well-off, cultured, urbane. Bacon came from money. He ended up with two estates, and he ended up with Max Lockton sheep on both of them. He inherited the family estate in 1895, and he traveled to study sheep. So he went to Shetland and various places. He was a top-notch livestock breeder who competed with his animals and did very well with them, and not just with the sheep. So he was very well known. He was very active in the community, very well thought of, and active in the church, active in politics, active in this, active in that, and traveling. So yes, very different personalities. However well-traveled, Bacon was still a proud Manxman, grounded in his community and the land. In fact, he made a point of wearing Manx wool wherever he traveled. According to Deb, he cut quite the dashing figure at all times. If Quirk saved the breed, Bacon put a stamp on it, creating the sheep that we know today. Up to that point, say the early 1900s, Manx could be white, gray, or black, along with the brown. But between 1904 and 1911, the colors went away because he really liked brown. So he was the one who bred for brown. And he also bred for four horns. Going back to genetics, brown is a recessive gene. So once all your sheep are brown, there's no going back. And remember what I said earlier, how when you breed for one trait, you might lose some other good traits or have some bad ones turn up? Bacon's brown sheep have horn buds that split into four horns, and that looks really cool. But those same sheep sometimes have a split eyelid as well, which is not cool at all. There's a little bit of a mystery here. Bacon was a big supporter of the breed. In 1904, he's actively breeding and promoting the sheep as, quote, exceptionally hardy, producing flavorful meat with a fine texture of wool. But then, by 1911, he's bred the flock down to a single color and is describing them as ornamental rather than good for wool and meat. 
by his death in 1916, his flock is down to 28 sheep. That's it. Deb and I talked about this at length, trying to figure out why his attitude changed. Did he feel, as he neared the end of his life, that it was fitting that the sheep die out with him? Did he take that split eyelid problem as a sign that the breed was doomed? We'll never know. With his death, Bacon's line ended as well. Two daughters survived him, but seemed to show little interest in farming. Once again, the breed would have disappeared completely, but for the intervention of another farmer. This one an Englishman. He believed his family was originally from the Isle of Man, and he was fascinated by its history. At the 1930s, we pick up the trail again. There's somebody named Sir Mark Collett, and he moved to the Isle of Man from Kent in southeastern England, and he gathered most of the remaining sheep because he was really intrigued by the Manx heritage. So here's an incomer who decides that this is really important and he wants to connect with it. There was one problem, though. Sir Mark was 71 years old when he took over the flock in a fit of Manx mania. He soon died, leaving his widow to look after things. This is the part of the story that's a long, kind of agonizing knuckle-biter. The breed limped along for the next two decades, never numbering more than a few dozen. And at some point after Collett's death, the remaining flock is taken over by the Manx National Trust. Think about this. These sheep that go back to the Bronze Age, that have been part of the landscape for thousands of years, they're now just a historical relic in a museum, like an Anglo-Saxon helmet. And they would have disappeared completely, if not for the final hero in the saga, a shepherd named Jack Quine. It's 1956, and the Manx Museum oversees the remaining eight sheep. That's right, eight sheep. And they put Jack Quine in charge, one very stubborn man determined to keep the breed alive against all odds. What inspires such devotion? In this case, you might need to look to the Isle of Man itself. Though smack dab in the middle of the British Isles, the Isle of Man is not part of the UK or the EU for that matter. It's called a self-governing dependency, meaning it gets military support and governmental supervision from the British Home Office, but for the most part, it does its own thing. And it's a place with a strong identity. Robert Quirk wanted nothing to do with the English, claiming the old Manx ways were the best. John Bacon was a breeder who extolled the Manx sheep wherever he went for its superior qualities. Mark Collett was an Englishman-turned-Manxman, devoted to the island and its sheep. And Jack Quine was part of the Manx Heritage Trust, dedicated to preserving the island's history. And that included the final eight Manx Lochtons. He called the sheep, the Manx Lochtons, a dead loss commercially. He had almost no support for keeping them going. But he did. And he made sure that in the 1950s and 1960s, a few animals were transported to zoos in England. Reason? Because they needed some sheep somewhere else just in case. Though zoos were the equivalent of the global seed vault, a means of preserving spare DNA against future catastrophe, it's just with eight sheep, there's not a lot to spare. You're probably wondering with the small number of sheep, how do you keep the breed alive? Breeding those ewes and that single ram together over and over is more likely to create sheep not with four horns, but with three eyes, no legs, and some really messed up genes. How do you avoid inbreeding? 
I don't have exact records, but Jack and the men before him brought in rams from other breeds. Ironically, you sometimes need to dilute a breed a bit in order to save it. And this happens quite a bit when you have declining breeds of anything. The trick is how you do it. So basically, if you're going to do any sort of invigoration of a gene pool, you want to stay as close to that original as you can. From time to time, Bacon or Collet or Quine brought in another European short-tailed sheep. Maybe a Shetland, maybe a Soe, something related. They had enough of the same traits to prevent any surprises come lambing time. But the fresh DNA meant a stronger flock, even if it was only 98.5% true manx. Jack Quine wore his love for the sheep on his sleeve, and I mean literally wore. Do you remember that bale of fleece Deb mentioned at the beginning of the show? It was tucked up under some rafters in the 1930s, then pretty much forgotten. 20 or 30 years later, someone found it, spun it, and made a sweater for Jack Quine. Wearing it was like waving a banner for the sheep. Of all the people in the story, Jack Quine is perhaps my favorite, even though I could find almost no info on him. I think it's his perseverance, lasting over a decade, when most people would have given up long before. Deb describes him as... Staunch and absolutely indomitable advocate. Slow and steady and absolutely persistent. Still, despite all these attempts, there probably wouldn't be much of a happy ending here, except for the most unexpected event, half a world away. See, in 1962, an American biologist named Rachel Carson wrote a very famous book called Silent Spring. And yes, it's a book about pesticide use in the U.S. and how it destroyed bugs and the birds that ate them. And we're talking about sheep 3,000 miles away. But that book arguably launched a global conservation movement. People started seeing how interconnected things were and how, once something was gone, it was gone for good. So the book is a bestseller and the focus of all kinds of controversy. But in the meantime, across the Atlantic, Jack Quine was just keeping on keeping on with the sheep. And while my producer and I were hoping to discover some really juicy and revealing anecdote, the truth is, when you're breeding sheep, not a lot really happens, except you get lambs once a year. It's probably complete coincidence, but 1962 was also the year that the Calf of Man, a small island off the southwest coast, was declared a bird conservatory. And a few years later, somehow, I could not find out exactly how, people, including Jack Quine, realized that Manx sheep are really good for birds. There is a particular bird called the red chuff. It's a small crow, and it inhabits the calf of man and surrounding islands. There's a story where a Viking ship anchored off the island, and the crew was completely freaked out when dozens of the birds reportedly dive-bombed the vessel. See, crows and ravens are sacred to their god Odin, so they took it as a sign that he was really irritated with them about something. Anyways, by the 1960s, that bird was in steep decline. The birds live on invertebrates, snails, worms, squishy things, and the growing population of the British Isles destroyed most of the open space they needed to forage. But remember when we said how Manx sheep prefer to eat bracken and tough scrub plants rather than grass? Clearing that bracken meant more tender plants had room to grow, and that's what the chuffs like to perch on. And the sheep's hooves stirred up the soil just enough, and their manure made that soil a happy place for the creepy crawly things that the birds like to eat. So in 1969, 
Jack brought a few of the remaining Manx sheep to the calf of man, and both sheep and birds flourished. The sheep were not now so much a source of meat and fiber, but a great conservation tool. So it's a really symbiotic relationship. And they have moved a bunch of Manx Lockton sheep to the island of Jersey for the same conservation purposes. So you end up seeing the chuffs uh, poking at the ground and getting their bugs and stuff while the sheep are hanging out right next to them. In 1973, the Rare Breed Survival Trust was founded in the UK, and today it promotes the preservation of hundreds of heritage breeds. Sheep, horses, cows, pigs. With their support, the Manx Lochtans now number maybe 2,000 breeding ewes. It's not much, but the breed is viable once again, and small flocks are scattered around England. Back on the Isle of Man, the Manx Lochtan is part of the landscape once again, They've become a recognized symbol of Manx heritage in a way that's best shown through a story not about farming or agriculture or history. It's instead a story about a motorcycle race, the Isle of Man TT. Yes. One of the interesting things about the Isle of Man is that after agriculture and fishing became less important, tourism started to become a big deal. One of the ways they get tourists in is by having motorcycle races because of the mountainous terrain. It's really challenging. In fact, the Isle of Man TT stands for Tourist Trophy, but they just call it TT, is considered the most dangerous race in motorsports. It's staggeringly dangerous. People, people die, including they've had a couple of spectators who've died. The TT motorcycle races on the Isle of Man have always had a reputation for danger. Competitors are killed every year, but they aren't the only victims. This year, nine fans have been killed. Motorcycles travel a mountainous route at close to 200 miles an hour in spots. And the dramatic race brings in 35 to 40,000 people a year to an island whose total population is maybe twice that. The race is so important to the economy that it's been canceled only four times since it began in 1907. World War I, World War II, COVID, and back in 2001, when something called hoof-and-mouth disease ravaged Great Britain. Hoof-and-mouth is a funny-sounding name, but a deadly, serious disease. Doesn't necessarily kill the sheep and cattle it infects, but it makes them unable to walk or eat because of the sores in their feet and mouths. It is astonishingly contagious passing between animals, people, even through the air. In 2001, six million animals were killed in the UK to stop the spread of the disease. On the Isle of Man, however, they decided to kill the race instead. The, the reason they did it was to protect the sheep. And it was both a heritage decision and a financial decision, because if foot and mouth had come in, they would have had to slaughter the entire sheep population of the island. And that would have been a, a tremendous hit. The financial hit was over $10 million in lost tourist revenue. But what they saved was so much more valuable. It can be difficult to explain what is so important about a single sheep or a bird or a plant. But we're set to lose over 500 species around the world in the next 20 years. And those 500 species can lead to the disappearance of hundreds, thousands more. We all know about endangered polar bears and pandas, but what about a tiny fish that feeds a lot of much larger fish? 
What about an inconspicuous cactus that supports ants that pollinate a dozen other flowers? And those flowers provide nectar for hummingbirds and other birds. And even if you can't work up the energy to care emotionally about that cactus or the sheep, there are practical reasons to want their survival. The reason, there, there are many reasons why the breed is still important. One of them is that we simply need that genetic package. Because once we lose a breed, reconstituting what it was is, um, say, thousands of years of effort. I mean, it really is a very difficult thing once we've lost it. And we never know what a gene package is going to do for us. And one of the examples of that is the Jacob, which uh, some parts of the Jacob flock in the U.S. developed a uh, condition where the lambs were dying. And it's turning out that they are key to our understanding of a disease that affects human children. And it just happens to show up in the Jacobs. Deb is talking about Tay-Sachs disease. It's a genetic disorder that destroys nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord of very young children. In 2009, sheep farmers in Austin, Texas, discovered the disease in their flock of Jacob sheep, a distant relative of the Manx. Could these sheep help find a treatment? Fast forward 12 years and a lot of research and testing, and gene therapy is now cleared for clinical trials in humans. And we have that rare sheep to thank. So you see, strange as this sounds, saving a sheep now not only saves a larger cultural history or part of an ecosystem, it might mean saving a human life down the road. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Alison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Julia Pillard helped with research. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer. 